a picture uh, presented to us in that hymn of the saints casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea uh, is a, a little bit of what we'll be studying this afternoon as we turn to Revelation chapter 15. Uh, Revelation chapter 15, please open up in your Bibles to that scripture passage as we read God's word and study it together. Revelation is the final of the books of the Bible. Quite easy to find. Revelation 15 happens to be the shortest of the books, uh, the chapters, pardon me, in Revelation as well. That being said, we'll only cover the first four verses for our sermon focus, although we'll read through the entire chapter uh, together. Revelation chapter 15. We give our attention together to the reading of God's word. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had numbered, pardon me, those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. As far as the reading of God's word, our focus again, Revelation 15, verses 1 to 4. At uh, Living Water, where I serve uh, more steadfastly. Um, that's our, our series focus right now. It's on the book of Revelation. We've come to this chapter uh, today and thus uh, study it together tonight. Well, beloved in the Lord, uh, we get to hit uh, absolutely a wonderful passage. It, it's, it's in some ways a blessing uh, for you as I will be di- at different areas in the book of Revelation. Wherever I preach uh, for pulpit supply, I'll just preach the same passage I'm preaching in my own church. And so sometimes when I visit a church, they've been launched into something very, very tough. Uh, they've been launched into things like the vision of the beast from the sea uh, who will triumph over the saints and the beast from the earth who will persuade all the world to worship the beast from the sea. We've been hitting topics that speak of rather heavy items. Today, we get the focus of praise. Uh, we get the focus that is something that is absolutely foundational to what it means to be a child of God and what it means to be redeemed in Christ. It is the idea that our lives are to be lived for the glory and the praise of God. It is a vision given in this book filled with visions where we have seen things that are great and terrible where as we read through the book, we will read of Christians laying down their lives. We will read of times in history where God will give authority to the enemy to triumph over the saints. We'll read about that this afternoon, Lord willing, as we study God's word. Times when the church will be persecuted, where to stand for Christ will mean that you cannot hold a job, you, you, you may lose your life, and you will certainly learn what it is to suffer for the cause of righteousness. 
In and through this book, and as all these various scenes unfold, one of the constant fibers, one of the constant truths that come out to us is not merely the idea that we are living in the last days right now, that we are living in a time of spiritual warfare right now, but also the centrality of worship. The centrality of knowing that no matter what we may face, no matter what the world may bring, no matter what kind of struggles may be before us as God's people, God is always worthy of our praise. He is always worthy of the delight of our hearts. He is always worthy to be adored with everything we have, not merely on the Lord's Day, although certainly that is a day of special importance, but in everything that we are, in everything that we have. We are to live for the glory of God. In Revelation chapter 15, that is the picture shown to us. We are given a vision of the church in worship. This is repeated in Revelation in chapters 1, 4, 5, 7, 11, 14, and 15 so far. And it's a reminder of what it means to live as God's people today. And the importance of knowing what it is to praise God. And to live not for ourselves and not for this world, but for the glory of the King who has made us, saved us, and called us to be his. And so we'll study this passage together with that focus that we are indeed called to be a people of praise. And we are called to be that people of praise as we are standing rooted in the finished work of our Savior. We'll see only two points this afternoon. The first point we'll see is how the uh, worship itself, or pardon me, the worshipers uh, call us to praise. And then we'll see how the worship calls us to praise. Looking first at the worshipers and second at the worship. And seeing how both these things show us the greatness and the, the beauty of God. So we begin in Revelation chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, please keep them open. Be working through a few different areas of Revelation just briefly uh, to help round out what we're reading here in chapter 15. But we begin with 15 verse 1. And it says this, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, you haven't been studying through the book of Revelation, but perhaps you have read it on your own, or perhaps we can just kind of tease out a few things uh, that maybe you remember from reading it before. Uh, does anyone understand the significance and the idea of seven? When we hit the idea of the seven bowls of God's wrath, uh, does it remind us of anything of a pattern or a habit we see in Revelation? If you've ever read through the book of Revelation, you may notice the number seven comes up numerous times. There are seven seals, seven churches, seven trumpets, seven bowls. God's work in Revelation is often depicted by the number seven. It's a picture of God acting sometimes to save the seven churches, acting sometimes to judge the seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. So we come to Revelation 15, we are going into another phase of judgment. We've already gone through the seven seals where God pours forth his wrath upon the human race that lives in rebellion against him. Revelation shows us very clearly that there is a God, there will be conflict in the last days, and the last days of Revelation are not some future time. The last days of Revelation are the time from which Christ ascended into heaven and sent out his Holy Spirit to the time in which he will return. According to the book of Revelation, according to God's word, we are living in the last days right now, and we have been for 2,000 years, roughly. But as you go through this book, you see these times of judgment. You see the seven seals. You see the seven trumpets. 
And the times of judgment can be scary. We studied the seven seals, and the first seal, if you remember, if you may know, is the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so as we went through that as a church, we talked about these four horsemen, conquest, famine, war, and death. And we spoke about the idea of God unleashing judgments in the world that would be devastating judgments. And we looked at where they could be seen in history. And we saw that the book of Revelation, while it is showing us the end things, can at times be a little scary. When we look at the idea of the seven trumpets, they've just been covered a few chapters earlier, in chapters 8 and 9 and 10, a little bit of 10 is continuing on. But as we look through those seven trumpets, those seven trumpets also show scary things. In chapter 9, the fifth trumpet sounds and a beast comes out of the abyss and leads an army of locusts that torment men day and night with their tails. It speaks of things that can be rather scary. And here we are on the eve of another whole wave of judgment. These final seven plagues, which says in verse 1, are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. This is like a heightening now, an increase, a, a grand finale to how God will judge the wicked. And it can be scary. But before we read about them, And before we hear them described, we see the church. And we see the church in glory. And we see the church in worship. Because no matter what may come upon this world, and no matter what God may allow to happen in his wisdom as a punishment for sin, those who trust in Jesus Christ will never be destroyed. And they will never be shaken. As we have gone through the book of Revelation, we have pointed out how the activity described of the beasts, the beast from the sea and the beast of the earth described in Revelation 13, we'll go to that in a little while, can be seen at work today. The first beast, the beast from the sea, is a beast who demands and uses authority to make all the world worship him. The second beast is called in Revelation a false prophet. It's a propaganda machine of types. And it uses propaganda and persuasion to tell the world to worship the first beast. Anyone who doesn't obey these beasts will pay with their lives. They'll be unable to participate in society. When we think about these things, we can look at our world. We can see changing laws. We can see changing requirements. We can see how more and more businesses are requiring allegiance or affirmation of certain sinful, anti-biblical practices if you are going to work for them or survive the month of June. We can look at how as a church we have watched laws change in our nation to try to limit what we're able to say as God's people on the basis of God's word about gender and purity and holiness for those who struggle with homosexuality, lesbianism, or transgenderism. We can look at how our government is putting in penalties for those who stand upon the word of God And recognize that in these things we can see a reflection of what is told to us in the book of Revelation will come. In all this, we are called as God's people not to compromise. We are called as God's people to be faithful until death. But that call is not given in the abstract. That call is given with an affirmation and an assurance The children of God will not fall. 
And by God's grace, if we stand in Christ today, that applies to us. And so we have this vision of the seven last plagues, and then we see this secondary vision, this this picture that comes beforehand. And verse 2 says, I I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. In the book of Revelation, the idea of the sea is often a place of uh, tumultuous, rebellious activity against God. The first of the beasts, which is a picture of the Antichrist, comes out of the sea. Later in chapter 17, we'll see a harlot who sits upon the waters. In Revelation 17, verse 15, it will say of that, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. The sea in the book of Revelation is often a picture of rebellious mankind fighting against the Lord. That's remarkably why in Revelation 21, when John sees the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, he says, and there was no more sea. Uh, It's done. But already here, what you see now is not a sea that's wavy and tumultuous, but you see a sea of crystal or a sea of glass. It's been, in essence, frozen. And upon the sea stand the saints. Upon the sea stand those, quote, who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. The, the picture given in Revelation 15, 2, it's, it's not uh, super-Christians. I don't know if you've ever read through the book of Revelation, you've come to sections like the two witnesses. In Revelation chapter 11, uh, John sees a vision of these two witnesses, and they're given tremendous power. And they, they bear witness in God's world. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouth or falls from heaven and consumes their enemies. And they are able to witness on God's world for three and a half years, or whatever the number of months that would be, would be 42 months. Uh, they're given this authority to bear witness. And I remember reading that passage as a child and thinking, I wonder if I'll ever get to be one of those two witnesses. I wonder if God would allow me to be one of those two witnesses that when all the world is tumultuous, I would be able to stand and speak and the Lord would, would uphold me. And I, I wondered that. And, and when I studied the passage, I realized I, I got my wish. The two witnesses are not two super Christians. Not two individuals who stand upon the world, upon the world and, and have special authority from God. They're the church. They're the church filled with the Spirit of God proclaiming the Word of God with an authority that the world will not be able to stop. And you can see that in the history of the world. You can look at countries and nations that have tried to stamp out the gospel in their nation only to see the gospel growing and extending tremendously despite all efforts to stop it. A few weeks ago, we had a special prayer request from Word Indeed. I'm not sure if you had the same, but it was to pray for churches in India Because since May 3rd to May 22nd or so, 220 churches in a single province in India were attacked and faced persecution for the gospel. 220 churches in roughly a three-week time period. And later we had a member who is a visitor who is with us and a regular visitor. And we had a bit of a prayer time and he was with us and he said, you know why those churches in India are being attacked? We said, no. He said, because the gospel began spreading in that province like a wildfire. People started coming to Christ in amazing numbers, and the Hindus decided they had to do something to try and stop the church, so they began to increase persecution so great that the Indian government had to send in the military to try to protect the church in a time of much upheaval. Why are we talking about this? The two witnesses weren't super Christians. They were ordinary men and women 
who knew what it was to be redeemed by God in Christ and stand for Christ upon his word. They are the church as she holds forth the word of God when all the world says to be quiet. That's who the witnesses are. And as you go through the book of Revelation, you find other super-Christians. Revelation 14 speaks of 144,000 who survived the affliction of the beast. They are pure, they are virgins, they follow the Lamb wherever they go. And if you study that passage and dig into it, the 144,000, they're not some kind of special quality of Christian. They're just a picture of a child of God who stands by faith in Christ, and therefore in Christ is made holy and pure and solely dedicated to God. And the same is true as you come to Revelation 15. Who are those who stand upon the sea of glass mingled with fire? They're defined in this way. First, they conquered the beast. If your Bibles are open, go to Revelation 13, verse 7. Revelation 13, verse 7. This speaks of that first beast that is conquered in Revelation 15. And it says this, you can read more if you want from verse 5 to understand this beast, but verse 7 is the key verse we'll focus on. It says this, also it, that is the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. This passage is incredible. It tells us that in God's judgment of this world, a time will come when he will allow the hostile forces of evil to make war on the saints and to conquer them. When you read commentaries on these types of passages, it says things like this, that there will be a time when the church will lose its visible presence in the world. When the church will not die or cease to exist, but she will be underground. She'll be meeting in secret because there will be such opposition that she cannot meet in public. But in Revelation 15, we find out that even though this beast is given some kind of authority to conquer the saints, the saints aren't truly conquered. They're not really beaten. To the contrary, they won the victory over the beast. That's because, as we read on in Revelation 13, not because they were so strong, not because they were so perfect, not because they were so virtuous, because their names were written in the Lamb's book of life. That means they were saved by grace in Jesus Christ. When we see the vision of Revelation 15, it is not a picture of some type of super-Christian who one day will have the victory over the enemy. It's the picture of you. If you stand by faith today, if you have come to realize your sin, if you have come to realize how much you need a Savior, if you've come to realize God's love for you in Christ, if God in his grace has brought you to a place where you are broken before him and you confess your sins and you ask him for mercy and you plead nothing but the blood of Jesus, then you conquer the beast. Then God won't let you go in the midst of the trial. These wonderful Christians not only conquer the beast, verse 2, but they also conquer its image. If you keep reading in the chapter 13, you'll come to the second beast. And the second beast, again, is this idea of propaganda. 
It tries to persuade everyone to worship the first beast. And in verse 14 of chapter 13, it says this, that the second beast, by signs it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who had not worshipped the image of the beast to be slain. I don't know exactly what that means, even though I've studied it. Uh, we talked a little bit about it as a church, and I had someone come to me afterwards saying, Pastor, I think I know what it is. I said, what is it? And they said, I think it's artificial intelligence. Maybe. I don't know. Whatever it is, it's some kind of propaganda that gives power to this first beast and causes everyone to worship it, and if you don't, you're going to be killed. Um, we have a dear saint in our church. She is in her 95th year, I believe, and she lived through uh, World War II. In her village, there was a family that took in and hid Jews from the Nazis to save the lives of the Jews that the Nazis were trying to kill. That family was caught. I don't know how many were in the family, but I know it was a husband and a wife and children. The family, according to this woman's testimony, was brought out into the street, and every single member of that home was shot. The Nazis left their bodies in the street of the village for three days, and no one in the village was allowed to move them. The village talked to each other. They all said where the bodies were, and out of respect for the family that had given their lives, the entire village never walked down that street for three days. I remember hearing that story and just being shocked at how great a cost it was to stand for holiness and godliness against a foreign, oppressive, satanic force. I don't know if you ever thought it would be easy to hide Jews. Have you ever thought, of course, I would do what's right and protect uh, those who are being unjustly killed? But you hear of something like that, and all of a sudden you begin to wonder, at least I did, would I stand? Uh, We live in a world today where Christians can lose their jobs and lose their businesses if they don't show some kind of allegiance an affirmation to the homosexual movement. And right now, it's maybe, for most of us, fairly easy to stand. But imagine we saw 70% of the businesses and jobs in this church lost. And you're one of the 30% left. If it was up to us, every single one of us would fall before the oppression that the devil can bring and the deceit that the devil can whisper. Every single one. And yet before the bowls of wrath are poured out, before another cycle of judgment is seen, before God shows his fury on the world, he shows John, he shows you, he shows me a vision of a church and every single one of the saints have victory over the image of the beast. 
They have victory over his name. They have victory over his number. That number, 666, that, that mark without which no one can buy or sell. That idea, the 666 is this, this number, it's kind of mysterious, but in Revelation, the number seven shows the fullness of God's work. It shows God's hand. Six falls just one number short of that number seven. It, it comes close to what God is doing, but it, it, it perverts it. It twists it. It sounds good, but it isn't holy. It isn't true. And the number is repeated in Hebrew, in Greek, when something is repeated, when Jesus says, truly, truly, amen, amen. He is saying this can be trusted, this is sure. When something is repeated, it's emphasized. The number six is repeated three times. Three times it is said that this number of the beast comes close to looking like the work of God, but always falls short, always twists it. And we can look at how we see in today's world the idea of coming close but falling short. Doesn't God love everyone? Doesn't God receive all of us? Kind of. He receives us if we are repentant in Christ. But not outside of him. Will the church stand against these lies that can come so close but twist the truth of God before the judgment of God is shown? God shows the saints of Christ standing upon the sea of glass. The promise of the Old Testament that God would set his, uh, say to his Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemy your footstool. The idea that God would, would put the enemies of God's people under their feet is pictured in Revelation 15. They are victorious. They stand upon the sea of glass and from there they worship God. Who are these worshipers? Who are these ones who make it to the end? Beloved in the Lord, they are the redeemed in Christ. They are you and they are me if you stand today by faith in Jesus. But if you don't, if you don't stand by faith in Christ, it's been remarkable to see how the growing polarization of our world has led people to begin to ask questions about the church. It's remarkable to see how we've begun to have conversations with our neighbors, at least, where they see the world and they're scared of where it's going. And they tend to think that if they are just strong enough and they stand up for morals and they do what's right, the world can be fixed, but it's not going to work that way. If you're not in Christ, you will not have the power to stand against the foe that would seek to destroy you. If you're not in Christ, you won't have the grace that is needed to be able to know forgiveness when you fall and when you need mercy in order to get back onto the side of the Savior. You see, these saints who stand in glory, who have victory over the beast and its image and its mark and its number, it's not as if they've never been corrupted. It's not as if they've never fallen. Among this group of illustrious saints stands David who fell into sin with Bathsheba, Peter who denied three times that he knew Christ, Paul who once persecuted the church of God and sought to destroy the people of the Lord. Among this great company of people stands every single one. Sinners redeemed by the grace of God. If that's you, then God tells you in the midst of all the turmoil, in the midst of all the trouble, in the midst of him showing the enemies and how great they might be and how strong they might be and how they might lead so many to death, God shows you if you stand with Christ, if you are not your own, 
your hope is in Jesus. And no matter how the dark, dark the days may become, and no matter how much you may struggle with the sin of your own heart, if you find your hope in Christ and press on in him, and you will stand upon the sea of crystal in the presence of God Almighty. And you will know what it is to be more than a conqueror through Christ who has loved you. The first thing that calls us to praise today is a picture of the worshipers, which is nothing less than a picture of the redeemed. Christians who by the grace of God stand where in themselves they could only fall. It's our first point. Our second point is this, what we learn from the worship. The first point is a little bit about us, perhaps more. The second point is a little bit tougher uh, because it's not about us. And we can say we know that salvation's not about us. But sometimes, when we speak about God a little more, we can find as even Christians that we begin to lose focus and begin to pay less attention. So don't. What happens when someone wins something? I uh, looked for some illustrations. I went back and searched for some times when we had won great achievements. And the only one I could find in recent history was the Toronto Raptors. I know. 2019. I started with the Leafs. You're supposed to groan. <laughs> anyway. 2019, the Raptors won the NBA Finals. Do you know what happened then? They had gone through all the playoffs. They had fought, won some close games. They had a parade. They went through Toronto on their bus. All the players were on the top. All the people gathered in the streets. And they all, yay, Raptors, right? These guys were the conquerors. They were the victors. And what did the world do? They worshipped the conquerors. They praised the victors. That's not Christianity. The beautiful thing about heaven is that it shows us the conquerors. And they aren't the ones being worshipped, they're the ones worshipping. That idea of holy, 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 when it speaks of the saints casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, it's a picture also taken from another place in Revelation. What it means is that you will receive the reward of, of faithfulness in Christ on that final day. You will be crowned with honor and glory before God as if you had never sinned or been a sinner, as if you'd been as perfectly obedient to God as Christ was obedient on your behalf. That's what we believe if you stand by faith in Jesus Christ. But Revelation tells us that if you stand before God and when you receive the reward that he has bought for you and purchased for you and guaranteed for you in Christ, you will take the reward you will take the crown and you will cast it at the feet of your God and you will say as we're going to sing after the sermon not unto us O Lord not unto us but to your name give glory what is true victory about it is not about the victors it is about the God who gives it and what we see in this heavenly worship is a group of saints who are redeemed they have conquered the beast they have done the impossible 
In Revelation 13, verse 5, the the world sees this beast, verse 4, pardon me, it sees the authority of the beast and the dragon who supports it, and the world cries out, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And in Revelation 15, we see the very ones who can beat this great foe. But what they are doing is they are not puffing themselves up, they're not looking at how great they've been to stand against the enemy, they are giving all the praise and all the glory to God alone who gave them and brought them through. And that is our calling. If you are here today and you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, if you are here today and you're wondering what it means to give your life to Jesus, it means that you are going to die to yourself and your own goals and dreams and give everything to the glory of God and the furtherance of his gospel kingdom. You're going to take up a cross and follow Jesus to make much of the Savior. That is the call that God has for you as a child of God. And that is the call the church accomplishes by God's grace in heaven. They stand before the throne and they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God, the song of the Lamb, the song of Moses is taken from Exodus 15 when God brings Israel through the Red Sea and out to victory and they sing the song. Uh, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider are thrown into the sea. Uh, We'll get back to that in a little while. And they say these words, first the end of verse 3, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. They praise God for two things that God is showing his glory to. First, his deeds, his works, his actions. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. If we know the gospel story, we remember how it begins in Genesis 3.15 with the curse that is set upon the serpent. Uh, I will put enmity between you, your seed and the woman's, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and you will crush his heel and he will crush your head. When the church finally comes to glory, when all the enemies of God are subdued under him, when Christ is triumphant and all his foes are put as a footstool under his feet, the church will look at God and say, Lord, no one can do what you can do. Great and marvelous are your works. I never lived through World War II. And I've never lived through a time when it seems as if there's an oppression that will never stop. In God's grace, I had a chance to go to Eastern Europe on a mission trip uh, after the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of communism in Eastern Europe. And I was able to meet and talk with Christians who lived through communism. And, and, and they said, you know, we thought it would never end. We thought it would never end. The book of Revelation pictures the Satan as a dragon. It pictures this unholy mock trinity of the dragon, the beast of the sea, and the beast of the earth that seems to have power to just destroy. And I've never been in a, in a position where it just felt like the darkness would not lift. But beloved, in Christ no such position exists. It doesn't matter how strong the enemy is. It doesn't matter how much control they have of media. It doesn't matter how much control they have of men's minds. Christ will win. 
In the song of Moses, they came through the Red Sea and they fought against an army of Pharaoh. They, they, they came out of Egypt. Pharaoh and his army chased after them. They were hemmed in because they had the Red Sea on one side and the army of, of Egypt on the other. And they had no way of escape. And God told Moses, stretch out your staff over the sea. And he stretches out his staff and the Lord parts the waters. And Israel walks through the bottom of the Red Sea. And when Egypt or Pharaoh and his armies follow after them, the Lord causes confusion and the, the wheels fall off their chariots and they're stuck in mud and everything goes wrong until Israel is all out of the water and then the waters return and the entire army of Pharaoh is absolutely destroyed, not a single survivor. When Israel came out the other side and saw the judgment of God, they praised God for two things. One, that they were saved and two, that God destroyed the enemy. The enemy may look appealing in some ways today. It may seem at times like it's worth compromise. But this enemy is doomed to destruction. And God will not fail to bring it. And it will be a destruction that no one can comprehend. And when we see it, we'll say, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God Almighty. God's works are great not only because he will make an utter end and destruction of all who have opposed him, but also because in the very act of making an end of those who oppose him, he will still redeem his church. God's power will be shown not only because he will finally break the back of Satan, because before he does, he will redeem from Satan's hand all those he has in his grace called to himself in Christ. That his power will be shown not just in winning a victory, but in making the very ones who fought against him into his bride, making them holy, to think that those saints on the crystal sea are each and every one redeemed by the blood of Christ and no longer who they used to be. And when God finally shows that victory over all opposition, they will know that the only way they could be saved and the only way good could win and the only way evil could be judged was by the action of a great and awesome God whose power is incomparable. They praise him because he has great works, but they praise him also, secondly, because just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. They praise God not only for what he does, but they praise God for how he does it. And in this, we, we hit something that can be easy some days and difficult some days. When we see someone saved... We can say, just and true are your ways, O king of the nations. God saves people in interesting ways. I heard the story of a, a man who came to faith when he was a young man. He was raised in a church family. He was in a covenant home, and he was given by his parents, as many of you may have done for your children, given his own Bible. They made a big deal of it. This is your Bible. They wrote his name in the cover. This is for you. We want you to read this. And in his time of rebellion, this man took this gift from his parents and he said, Lord, I want no more of you. And he took the Bible and he tossed it in the garbage and he hid it under trash so his parents wouldn't find it. And he said he wanted no more part of God. And God's sovereign grace, some months later, he was walking to school and he saw on the side of the road a, a Bible that someone had discarded. And he walked past it, but it stuck in his head and he thought, that's no way to treat a Bible shouldn't be left out in the rain. That's not proper. And he said to himself, if the Bible's there again tomorrow when I walk by, I'm going to pick it up. 
And the next day when he walked by, the Bible was still there, and he picked it up off the ground, and he took it home, and he read it, and he became a Christian. What a thing. The very act he did, done by someone else, God used to bring him to salvation. I spoke with someone this past week who had been diagnosed with a fairly serious illness. He was diagnosed roughly 12 years ago. And as we discussed the illness, he said, you know, I'm not upset that I was diagnosed with this illness because I wasn't a Christian. Uh, we, I grew up in a non-Christian home. I didn't know my wife had begun going to church. I knew she was going to church. I didn't know how seriously she was taking it. She would hide her Bible reading from me so I wouldn't see her reading the Bible. But when I got diagnosed with this illness, she said, maybe you should come to church. And I said, maybe I will. In God's grace, I came to faith in Jesus. And we can see something like that and say, wow, just and true are his ways. He worked through this type of illness to bring someone to salvation in Jesus Christ. And we can look at not only what God does in condemning sin and in saving sinners and say he's great and powerful that, but we can also say how he does it is just and how he does it is true or righteous. But that applies not only to when we can see the end of the story, but also to when we can't. If we can see how that young man will later find a Bible and feel convicted that someone treated the word of God shamefully, even though he himself had done it, we can say, just and true are your ways. If we can see someone diagnosed with an illness and it leads them to faith in Jesus Christ, we can say, just and true are your ways. But the truth is in heaven, when we see the entire spectrum of all that has happened on earth, of all the good things and of all the bad, of all the trials, of all the hardship, of all the illnesses, of all the loss, of all the brokenness, of all the families that haven't been blessed with a good home where they were taught the things of God. We will look at all that God has said and we will not argue with his wisdom. We will not doubt his goodness. We will see how he has acted even in the times of hardship, even in the times of struggle, even in the times of sorrow. And we will see what he does in the the condemning of sin, the condemning of evil, and the victory he brings. And we will say, Lord, all that you've done throughout all of life has been just and righteous and true and worthy of praise. And beloved Lord, if you are currently going through a season and a time when you are doubting the goodness of God or you're doubting the wisdom of God, and you're going through one of those seasons where, where the, the, the trouble just doesn't seem to end and you wonder if God hears you or if God cares or if God is listening, may you remember the word of Job our brother in Christ who said, yet though he slay me, I will praise him. We don't get to see in this life how God is using all the struggles for his glory, but one day we will. And when the whole picture is set before us, we will have no complaint. We will praise God because he is sovereign and wise, just and true, and all that he does is good. And if we can't see it now, then may we at least be assured of it. Because the God who oversees your life and orchestrates every detail of it 
has not only shown himself to be just and true in the worship of the church, but he's shown himself to be just and true in the sending of his Son, the only spotless Lamb of God, who knew no sin, took on the wrath of God, the wrath of hell, that you might be saved. If ever we could think there was a time when God was not just, God was not true, God was not holy, it would be in the crucifixion of Christ. Yet God has shown, even there, he does all things well. The worship continues to proclaim God as the only holy one, separate from all sinners, separate from all people, the only one worthy of praise, and speaks of how all nations will come because his acts have been revealed. But the call of the passage as a total thing, from Revelation 15, 1 to 4, it's given to you and it's given to me that we might know what this life is meant to be all about. That we might understand the significance of who we are and what we're doing. It's a vision of a victory that God will give to his people and a victory that isn't just about us. It's about the greatness of the God who has saved us and bought us and loved us in Christ and does all things well. Beloved Lord, as we consider this passage before us today, can we learn from it? Can we see in God's vision to John the call that he gives? The church is to be a place and the Christians are to be a people who are identified as those who know the greatness and the glory and the splendor of God. Does worship shape who we are? When you go through the Bible and you see Paul and Silas put in jail in the midnight hours after being beaten for their testimony of God, they're singing hymns to God. Do you get it? Does it make sense to you? I understand why they're praising God, even though they're just beaten for the name of Christ, because God is everything to them. It's not about Paul and Silas. It's not about how comfortable their life is. It's about a God who is able to save even when all the world stands against the gospel. Let's praise him. As we live in a world where we sometimes get a little scared, and we see laws changing, we wonder if persecution's coming, and we may even see persecution fall on those we love. Can we praise God? Can we look at a future where God may call us to give up our homes or give up our comfortable jobs or give up our reputations and say, Lord, even if that's the cost, even if that's the call, I will praise you because it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about a God who is worthy of praise and he has the victory in Christ even when all the world stands against him. Beloved Lord, will you indeed be a people who is redeemed through the spotless blood of Christ that you may proclaim, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2, the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are we characterized by praise that shows salvation is all about the glory of the God who saves. And he is worthy no matter what the cost. Beloved, may we see the beauty of our Savior and may we praise him as his children. Let's join together in prayer. Father in heaven, as we come before you this afternoon, uh, Lord, 
Please forgive the times when we uh, take the things of this life and we do make them about ourselves. And uh, we tend to think, Lord, that when we are going through a difficult season, and we know, Lord, those seasons can be truly difficult, that you care for us in those seasons. Lord, we can doubt your goodness because you allow us to face hardship. And we can close our mouths to praising you because, Father, we are bitter or angry with what a wise and just and powerful God has allowed us to face for his glory. And Father, we thank you that as we consider the trials we face in this world, uh, Lord, you show us that if we stand in Christ, we shall be more than victors. But we pray as we continue on this side of heaven, as we continue to face the battles, as we continue to face the foes that may come against us, Lord, we may not be moved from the foundation we have in Christ as those who are redeemed and bought at a price and now are called to live for the glory of God. We pray, Lord, that more and more our hearts and lives may be captured and caught up in a trajectory that gives all praise and honor and glory to you. And we pray, Lord, that this will be a witness that the world cannot stop, though it may try that you will show the all-surpassing power is continually of God and not of us. So, Lord, will you grant us your grace. So will you give us your joy. So will you give us courage to praise you even in trials. And may we exist as a people who lives for the glory and the honor of your name. In Christ's name we pray.